You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Today's passage comes from... I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days? Um, life and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, you can be seated. If you have a copy of scripture, open up to Psalm 34. What a wonderful psalm. Feels like just reading it was enough, but we will walk through it together. Let's, uh, let's go before the Lord and, uh, and just give, our, give this time to him. Oh Lord, we come before you and um, are in awe of you and your greatness Lord, we will behold some of your glory in your word today. And this, sermon, this, uh, this passage, this scripture is far bigger and far more glorious than any one sermon or even one Sunday or even one lifetime uh, can experience and, uh, and mine out. So Lord, we, we thank you for the, the riches of your word and we pray, Lord, that, uh, that we would behold you that we would see you, that we would glorify in you, that we would live for you, that we would enjoy all that you are for us in Christ. Uh, so Lord, we, we pray that we would hear your voice in these next few minutes. And um, God, we thank you for your kindness to us, to give us your word and to give us particularly this word for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so um, if you look at Psalm 34... You may have a bit of an introduction to the psalm there. Usually it says of David or for the stringed instruments. It gives some sort of indication there. This is a strange one. I had forgotten about this story in the scriptures. Um, uh, It says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Uh, Just a really strange situation. It's found back in 1 Samuel 21, that story. Um, I'll give a little run-up to that story, because the story itself is just very fascinating. But I don't know if you have ever, like, kind of played dumb to get out of something, <laughs> or pretended like you, pretended to, to be someone else to try to get out of a jam, and that's essentially what David does. Um, if you go back to 1 Samuel, uh, you'll notice that, uh, that Saul is the first king of Israel. Israel demanded a king. God said it's not a good idea to have a king, but he, God allowed them to have what they wanted, and they chose the most impressive man they could find, which was Saul. And he was the first king of Israel, but he ends up displeasing the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, it's my turn to pick now. Saul is going to be cut off. Um, his, his lineage, his time as king has come to an end. And so um, Saul uh, remains king for a while. Uh, but God says his lineage will not be the kingship of Israel. And so then God uses Samuel to select a little boy 
from a, 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 a family, just a common family, and it's the forgotten boy named David. And David is going to be the next king. We see that in 1 Samuel 16, where God surprisingly chooses the weak, lowly, uh, forgotten, overlooked shepherd boy named David. In uh, 1 Samuel 17 is where we get the famous story of David and Goliath. So uh, the Israelites are paralyzed because the Philistines are, are, um, have declared war against them, and they're lined up in the Valley of Elah, and they have a warrior named Goliath who is just gigantic and a true warrior in every sense. And, uh, and basically, uh, they are calling for the best warrior of Israel to come battle Goliath, and nobody is up to the task. And so God's people are paralyzed by Goliath, and even Saul himself is. And so David comes in and goes, we're the people of God. Like, you know, we should take this on. And so David decides, um, um, God uses David to essentially defeat Goliath. You know that story with the smooth stones and the cutting off his head. So what happens then is that David now is on the scene. He is now someone, he has helped deliver the people. God's used him to deliver the people. And so now David's got a bit of a reputation. And uh, as he becomes this warrior, um, he becomes very successful in battle as a general and as a warrior. And there's this refrain that begins to show up in 1 Samuel 18, where it says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And so this idea that, that David is a much more uh, effective leader than Saul. So Saul's still king. This little shepherd boy is growing in prominence, and Saul feels threatened. Uh, what complicates the situation a little bit is that Saul's son, Jonathan, the heir apparent to the throne, ends up striking up this, this friendship with David and is really closely knit with David. But Jonathan fears the Lord and knows that he's not going to be the next king. David will be. And David, in, Psalm, uh, in Samuel, 1 Samuel 19, Saul tells Jonathan that he is going to kill David. And so Jonathan, in a sense, sort of betrays his father's intentions, lets David know, and so David is now on the run. They have this sweet moment together, Jonathan and David, as they know now that, they, um, that their friendship is going to be strained at this point, um, and so David has to flee. Now, David does something really strange, is that he's fleeing Saul, because Saul has now got this mission, he's got this determination, he's going to send his army out to destroy David and just, just eliminate him. So David is on the run. And he runs to the strangest of places. In, in, uh, in, Saul, in 1 Samuel 21, he flees to the most absurd place. He flees to the hometown of Goliath in Gath. So he runs to the Philistines. Now, if you can just imagine, not that long ago, David had just cut off the head of Goliath. And so you can just imagine their families mourning and weeping. The, nation, the Philistine nation is sort of reeling still from that. And of all the places David runs for refuge from Saul, he runs to the hometown of Goliath. And what happens is there's a king there. I'll, I'll pick this up in, uh, in, in verse 12. Um, he flees to the king Achish um, or Abimelech. It seems like there's multiple names for this one king of the Philistines. And essentially, he flees there, and Achish doesn't totally recognize David at the moment. And so his servants come to him. And say, hey, isn't that the guy that like totally embarrassed us, wiped out our big warrior, and has been uh, a thorn in our side ever since? Isn't he the one that the Israelites celebrate as this great warrior? Isn't he the one who they say uh, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands? This should not be a guy that we give refuge to. And so the servants are like, this guy is one of our enemies. Why are we giving him refuge? 1 Samuel 21, 12. David took these words to heart, so he overheard this, and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you... Uh, have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And so 1 Samuel 22.1 says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So just a fascinating story where David kind of does this, this, this foolish thing in fleeing to Gath and then has to kind of put on this show and sort of humble himself. You know, he's this man of great prestige and he has to kind of lay aside his pride and he acts, uh, acts crazy and it works. 
And so then he flees to the, the cave of Adullam, and he's in, this, he's in this tight spot where he's stuck between the Philistines. He's between a rock and a hard place, the Philistines and King Saul. He's got no place to go. He's in this cave, but he escaped. He escaped by this cleverness. Now, what's interesting is that you would think that David, like if, if I was David, I would be kind of, you know, I'd be kind of impressed. Like, man, I pulled off the, the, the most amazing little trick here. But he doesn't. He, he doesn't when he pens the words of Psalm 34 in that cave in Adullam uh, following this episode. Um, he doesn't give himself credit for what happened, but gives God credit for it. He sees that this clever, uh, this clever escape was actually used by God to deliver him. And then he writes this song. Um, he writes this psalm. And so just a really interesting backstory, really strange really uh, raises a lot of questions, which I'm sure will come up in the Q&A a little bit later. Uh, but this psalm is just a sweet psalm. And, uh, and, uh, and the title of this message is Glorify and Enjoy God, because that's what David's doing in that cave. He's on the run. He's a fugitive. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. But God has continued to be faithful, and so he is going to glorify and enjoy God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, which I think will be on the screen here. The very first question in that catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the memorized response that you teach your children and that you teach your church is that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of your existence? What's the purpose of everything in the universe? It is this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you draw breath. That's what we're to do in the morning and at lunchtime, in the evening, in our trials, at work, on your phone, on your social media, the internal dialogue you have in your head all the time. You're in your marriage, in your singleness, in every way, in every aspect, we are to glorify and enjoy God. And we can. We can. I think there's some people that think that having a relationship with God or being a Christian means that all of a sudden we lose all our joy. But no, we are opened up to a whole world of enjoying and glorifying God and finding joy in glorifying Him and glorifying Him in enjoying Him. Those two are go, go together. Glorifying and enjoying God are two sides of the same coin. Uh, what's interesting about this psalm is that it's, uh, each line, each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I forget what that's called, but... Um, so that first in, in the Hebrew starts with the letter A, and then verse 2 starts with the letter B, and then C, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit. I don't, can't remember all the Hebrew letters, but um, it's a very clever, uh, cleverly arranged poem where he's just reciting and glorifying and enjoying God in each line with each letter of the alphabet. And what he's trying to conclude there is that everything is made to enjoy, to glorify and enjoy God. Even the entire alphabet, like the entire span of the Hebrew language is designed to glorify and to share and express the enjoyment of God. And I think in this psalm, David gives us five ways to glorify and enjoy God. All right, so this psalm, each verse, each sentence could in and of itself be an entire sermon. And so this is a big, big psalm. Each and every Word, each and every sentence and phrase and verse is just rich, um, rich with the glor glory and enjoyment of God. And so in verses 1 through 3, we, in, we glorify and enjoy God through worship, through worship. And I would define that as delighting in the greatness of God, delighting in the greatness of God. Look at, look at how he starts the psalm in the first three verses. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So that's where he starts the psalm is by glorifying and enjoying God through worship. And notice the delight here. Like this is not a begrudging thing. This is not him kind of standing in, standing there in his, with, with his hands in his pockets, sort of mumbling through a song. This is like a wholehearted, whole body like I will praise and delight in the Lord. I enjoy him so much. So I, I think worship here is described as a desire-driven, intentional act. He makes intentions. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. So he intends. He's like, I intend for my entire life to be an act of worship to God. He's intentionally pursuing it. It doesn't just happen when he feels like it. He's like, no, I'm going to pursue it until I feel it. I'm going to go after this. 
Um, and, and it's intentional. It's desire-driven. He wants his whole heart to be enjoying God. Uh, not just checking the box, but genuinely treasuring and desiring, delighting in the greatness of God. Notice that in the first verse and a half, through halfway through verse 2, it's personal. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be in my mouth. Let, uh, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. So he starts with himself. He starts by stirring himself up in, ter- in intentional delight of God. But then it turns halfway through verse 2. And he says, let the humble hear. If there's any others that want to bow before God and enjoy him, if there's any other humble people out there that aren't too prideful, that aren't too prideful to give them so, themselves entirely to the light of God, if there's anyone that's humble that wants to join me and be glad, enjoy God, then he begins to, it turns corporate, right? He begins to want to share this praise with us. Is there anyone that wants to humble themselves and be glad in God with me. And so he extends this invitation. And look at verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Like, come. There's this invitation. Come, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. The word bless in verse 1 has the idea of kneeling down in submission. Intentionally, in all situations, he says, at all times, I will kneel down in submission to God. The word praise in verses one, uh, the second half of verse 1, his praise to speak positively about the excellencies of another. Like, I will proclaim his greatness. It will just come flowing out of me, always speaking highly of the excellency of God. In, in verse 2, boast. Um, that means to cheer or to brag on. Um, he's not bragging in his own ingenuity about getting out of, uh, out, of, out of danger, but on God's providence. I will boast that it was God who delivered me out of the hands of Akish. And then you see the corporate nature. Let us uh, humble, uh, let the humble hear and be glad. David wants his worship to be contagious. He doesn't just want to worship to stop with him. He doesn't want to just worship on his own. He wants the worship to spread to others. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. To magnify is to make great, to make much of. There's two ways to magnify something. You could magnify something like with a microscope, Right? So you have something small, something that's very, very small, and you look through that microscope, and it looks bigger than it is. That's not the kind of magnify here. God is not small and needs our help to make him look big. It's more like the magnification that comes through a telescope. A star looks far away, right? But it's actually huge, often much huger, huger huger-er than our own planet. What a telescope does it's a telescope magnifies to show something that, to make it look a little bit more like it really is. And that's the kind of magnify that we're talking about here. Not to make our, our small little God look bigger than he is, but with our life and with our praise, to make him look more to the world, to one another, as he really is. Because sometimes he feels far. And he looks like he's not involved and doesn't look very powerful. But when we're together, we're to magnify. We're to make him appear and experience him as more of like he truly is. That's what it means to magnify him, is to make him more, um, make perceivable what God already is. And then let us exalt, to lift high his name together. I love to use that verse 3 at weddings, because that really is the spirit of the Christian wedding. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. That's a great purpose statement. For any Christian, but particularly, I think, I love to use that in weddings. Um, And so, listen to what C.S. Lewis says. I love this. When I came across this a few years ago, this just uh, blew me away. Here's what he says in his book, Reflections on Psalms. When it comes to the corporate nature, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. You're not fully enjoying something until you actually praise it. Okay, is, what, is the argument he's making. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. They're missing out on some of the enjoyment until they express that to the other person. Okay, is what he's saying. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly to a turn in the road and upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur. And then to keep silent because the people with you care no more for it than a tin can in the ditch. 
to hear a good joke and have no one to share it with. We shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy God is to glorify, or, or anything. Fully to enjoy something is to glorify, and in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to join him. Does that make sense? That the enjoyment of something is incomplete until you share it with somebody. And that's why God made us to praise. And that's what David is experiencing here. So let me just ask you a few questions on this first one. Do any of these words, bless, praise, boast, glad, magnify, exalt, do any of those describe your thoughts of God? Does this, does this capture your approach to your day? Does this approach your, does this, does this kind of summarize the approach that you have to church? Because you can. God wants us to enter into this kind of state. Uh, my question is, do you even want it to be the case? I think that's the mark of a Christian, is not that they're living these things perfectly, but they want to. They want to know God. They want to glorify Him. They want to enjoy Him. If there's nothing in you that's kind of pulled forward in these three verses, then I wonder if you even have a relationship with God, if you're even a Christian. If these don't pull you forward, like, I want that. I want to enjoy and glorify God. David didn't always live up to this ideal, but he did genuinely enjoy God in this way. So I wonder, what stirs your affections for God? What lifts your heart, lifts your mind, presents before you um, the greatness of God? For me, music, podcasts, and books are things that, I, uh, that, that lift my heart to God. I, I love that. That's just kind of the way I'm wired. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's something else for you, something recreational or something, something that just kind of lifts your heart, lifts your mind to God, increases your joy, like makes you ponder his greatness. And that's why I'm constantly sharing podcasts and books and articles all the time is because I am asking you to enjoy them with me. And you should do the same. Whatever it is that you enjoy that lifts your heart to God, invite others to be a part of that. If you love going on a hike that just draws your heart to God, go with somebody and talk about the greatness of God. Maybe it's hiking, maybe it's singing, maybe it's listening to sermons. Weave more of that into your life. Find out what stirs your affections for God and interweave more of that into your life. Whatever draws your heart for God and with others, hang out with others that do different things because maybe there will be a joy in God that you discover that you didn't, that you didn't know about until you went with that person and enjoyed that concert or you went and experienced that thing. There might be something that you can enjoy in God. Uh, you cannot be too glorifying to God, and you cannot be too happy in God. So this first one's a big one. Delighting in the greatness of the Lord. Secondly, in verses 4 through 7, we see that we glorify and enjoy God through prayer. Looking for the protection of the Lord. Look at this. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. I think he's speaking of prayer here. That even while he was acting crazy to try to get out of that situation, in his heart he was crying to God for deliverance. He said, God, oh please, get me out of this. And God did. Notice the active face-oriented words. Prayer is like being face-to-face -face with God. It's seeking his face with your face. Notice the face-oriented words. I sought the Lord. I was looking for him. Um, those who look with their eyes. I'm going to turn your face to God. That's prayer. Turning your face, your attention to, to, to see God. It says, their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, tears, like looking for God, crying out to God. And then notice the attentiveness, attentiveness of God. Notice the face of God turned towards their prayers. Your prayers turn the face of God in that sense. Notice the attentiveness of God. He answered me. I looked for him and he looked back. He heard me. He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. The Lord heard him, saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around them and delivers them. So notice that God was attentive to the prayers of his people. They were looking and, and he was looking back. So what is your first response? Well, notice the setting here. Notice the setting of the prayers. It's in difficulty, right? In his difficulty, he's seeking the face of the Lord. So what do you do in difficulty? Do you see God in prayer? Or do you turn to complaining or, some, or social media or something 
something else. It is, it, do, do you turn to God in your trials and your fears and your troubles? Do you look for the face of God? Because you can, and you ought to, and it's glorifying to him. Seek God in prayer. Seek his face. What makes you complain or irritated or anxious? These things are probably that way because you're not seeking the face of the Lord. You're looking for something else for deliverance. There's probably some idol or self-deity that's being threatened in that moment, and now God is going to use that as an opportunity to seek his face, to know him. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ, Christ Jesus. It's possible that we are strangling our own joy in God because we don't look to him in prayer. We, we might be cutting off our own joy by failing to go to him in prayer. If you see someone who has a noticeable supernatural peace, even in hard circumstances, it's probably because they have a prayer life. It's probably because they're encountering the face of God. Not that their circumstances necessarily always change immediately, but look at verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. So if you're wondering, like, how is that person making it through cancer like that? How is that person dealing with that death like that? They're probably regularly seeking the face of the Lord, and it's radiating out of them. Not that everything's always happy and easy, but there is a real radiance that comes from seeking the Lord in prayer. Find a time and place to regularly meet with God and pray for the things that you fear. I love the little prayer mate app. Um, I've tried prayer journaling at times. It doesn't work very well for me, but I commend that to you as well, to write out your prayers. The prayer mate app is a helpful way for me to make sure I'm praying for things. But come up with a plan to seek the Lord's face in prayer that you may glorify and enjoy him and that you may radiate. Let's look at uh, um, the third one in verse 8. Just verse 8. Glorify and enjoy God through Scripture, tasting the goodness of the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who take, takes refuge in him. Now, this is a very strange statement. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So you have to taste in order to see a quality that can't be tasted or really seen. Like, right? it's, it's an interesting phrase here. Consider the instructions. God's goodness can and must be seen, right? Wouldn't tell us the verse if it was impossible, but his goodness can and must be seen, but it's only seen not by observing at a distance, but by tasting intimately. An intimate experience is how God's... You can't just explain God's goodness. You have to taste it. Which is, there's an intimate thing, like, right? Like, usually, if you're given some sort of strange food, you look at it, and then you taste it. But this is the kind of thing, like, you have to taste it in order to be able to even see what it is, right? The goodness of God is like that. It has to be tasted and experienced. It can't be totally explained. It makes no sense. And, in fact, you can't hardly even see it, necessarily, until you've experienced it, the goodness he's talking about here. One pastor named Barry Cooper put it this way. He says, how unsettling that the Bible puts it like that. The psalmist had said, see that the Lord is good. He, we might comfort ourselves into the delusion that God could be observed at a safe distance. But we must taste in order to see. Tasting can't be done remotely at arm's length or by proxy by someone else. Tasting is impossible without coming close to the food in question and opening ourselves to it. It requires that we pick something up, put it into our mouths, onto our tongues, and swallow it so that it goes down deep into us and then it becomes part of us. It actually changes us, whether we like it or not. We are no longer quite the people we once were before tasting. For years, the Bible has been telling me to taste and see the Lord is good. And for years, I have been gawking at a plate of food and hoping that the act of staring at it would fill me up. I somehow expect to know God without tasting, without allowing his word to invade me, nourish me, and, cha and change me. He's talking about his word. You taste and see that the Lord is good by eating the word of God. The scriptures bear this out, that that's what David means here. David says in Psalm 19, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, 
even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. So the word is regularly talked about as food. Um, um, uh, let's see, Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Deuteronomy 8, 3. And he humbled you and let, your hunger and, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Job 23, 12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3, and he said, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll, meaning his word, and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. God actually called, a, God actually called the prophet Ezekiel to actually literally eat a scroll of Scripture to, to, to provide a visual illustration of what his people are to do. Uh, so I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll, and he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I have that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Charles, uh, Charles Spurgeon says this, these are, these are some things, especially the depths of the religious life, which can only be understood. There are some things, especially in the depths of the religious life, that can only be understood by experiencing, and which even then are incapable of being adequately embodied in words. Taste and see the Lord is good. The enjoyment must come before the illumination. We take the word in even before we un completely understand it. And then in taking it in, we begin to see. It's the enjoyment that is the illumination. John Piper says, we taste the sweetness of God as he meets us in his word. Spiritual hunger longs for rich, substantial nourishment. My guess is you came in here hungry. You wake up every day hungry. And the Lord is going to give you good food, solid meat, sweet milk from his word. Jonathan Edwards spoke of this. He says, God is gloried not only in his glory being seen, but it's being rejoiced in. When, these, when those that see it delight in it, God is more glory, glorified than if we only see it. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature to receive his glory, both in heart and mind. He testifies, he that testifies his having an idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he who testifies about its approbation means his heartfelt commitment, com commendation, praise, his delight in it. Uh, in 1 Peter, uh, Peter must have spent a lot of time in Psalm 34 because 1 Peter is filled with Psalm 34 quotations. One of them is in 1 Peter 1, 23. Speaking of God's word, speaking of this very thought here, 1 Peter 1, 23 through chapter 2, verse 3. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. He's speaking of that word that we're to eat. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flowers of, the gra of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord rem remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Let this food that you eat, this gospel that you've taken into yourself, let it change you. Put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, evil, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into the salvation, if indeed you have tasted the goodness of the Lord. A.W. Tozer says, The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God. It's meant to be tasted, not just looked at. The Bible is a feast. It's to be taken and enjoyed and digested, not just looked at and appreciated, not just quoted occasionally, but feasted on. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him and that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. The way we know the goodness of God is by tasting and seeing the word of God. So do you have this kind of hunger for God's word? I, I admit that I don't often have this kind of hunger for God's word. At least I know I do, but I don't always go there to satisfy that hunger, if that makes sense. 
it, and we should. Do you savor it? Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you love to discuss it? Do you love it preached and explained? So one of the most important aspects of our worship service and life as a Christian is preaching, what I'm doing right now. To sit down before the Word of God and feast in it together. This is like entering my, my daughter, wherever she is. She loves Golden Corral. I think I've talked about this before. She loves Golden Corral because she can get as much as she wants of whatever she wants. And usually because her grandparents have taken us there, right? Bree's parents, when they're in town, always take us to Golden Corral. So it's the fact that we're eating together. It's the relationship and the enjoyment of the food. And that's what Sunday morning is. Is that right now, you are getting the, the food of Psalm 34 laid before you and we're getting to enjoy it together, hopefully. Hopefully, enjoying it together. So we're sitting down before the Word of God and we're feasting on it together when we gather. Never settle for a preacher who does not love the taste of the Bible. You can kind of tell sometimes when a guy preaches, whether he's good or not, <laughs> you know, as a speaker. But does he delight in the Bible? Never settle for a preacher that doesn't himself taste and see the Lord is good in, in his word. A preacher who has never seen God this week. It's obvious that he has not been savoring God's word this week. And is urging you, don't, never settle for a preacher that won't urge you with all his might to see God as well tasting the word of God work with all your might to cultivate a personal life a family life a church culture that tastes and sees the goodness of God in scripture so how do you prepare for the preaching of God's word each week my kids at every meal have the same prayer at least same line in their prayer God please let the food be good <laughs> which is not always the kindest thing to say to your mom oh God please Please, Lord, do a miracle. Make this taste good, right? That really ought to be our prayer for Sundays. It ought to be our prayer for our quiet times. Oh, Lord, may your word taste sweet to me. I pray for whoever's preaching this Sunday, Lord, that they would prepare so well that it would just taste delicious. Like, Lord, let the food be good. It is good. Let, let me taste it as good. Let me see it as good. Lord, let this meal be good. Let, let me taste your goodness. We should pray for our preaching and our quiet times in that way and for the preaching and quiet times of each other. I pray that, that Stephen's time in the Word this week is sweet and that the Lord is seen as so good. Pray. Pray for that. How do you relate to the Bible during the week? Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you discuss it with anyone? Do you listen to sermons? Turn off the political talk and the sports talk and even the Christian fluff radio that sometimes is out there. Listen to robust sermons of men who have tasted and seen the glory of God, the goodness of God. Some of my favorites are guys like R.C. Sproul and David Platt and John Piper and Kevin DeYoung and Ligon Duncan. I've got a whole list. And I love that, just when I'm mowing the lawn, like let's, let's, let's cut off some of those other things and let's taste and see the Lord is good through our Bible reading, through the things we listen to. Get yourself a good Bible reading plan. I have some actually right out on the table out there if you want a good one, a good plan to lead you through the Bible. Have a family devotional time if you have a, a family and kids. Join one of our small groups where we discuss the sermon and dig into the text each week. Start a Bible study or a book study, something that gets you to taste and see the goodness of, of God. Read a good theology book that will give you categories of understanding and ways to be able to interpret the scriptures. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Like uh, Bring your taste buds alive with good theology. And then number four. Taste and see the Lord is good through obedience, living in the fear of the Lord. Verses 9 through 14. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. So just notice, fear of the Lord will come up again and again through this section. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord last no, lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? That's the key question in the whole psalm. He's like, we want to live a long life and we want to have good days. We want to have, we want to have life and we want to love our days because we want to see something good, right? You want to see something good? The answer to the question is the rest of the psalm, which is God. See, glorify, delight in God. That's the answer to the question. You want to know what makes your days full, delighting and enjoying God. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and, and seek peace and pursue it. I would define the fear of the Lord as, uh, well, I'll define. I think the fear of the Lord is caring about what God thinks 
more than you care about what the world thinks and more than what you think. The fear of the Lord is like, I think what God says, what God declares as beautiful and good is what's good. I, I think that what he says is better than what someone else says or even what I think. Fear of the Lord more than fear of man and even more than fear of self. Like, maybe I want that thing, but the Lord says that's not good for me. Fear of the Lord says, I believe God, not myself, right? Fear of the Lord is that I, I, I care about what he thinks more than I care about other things. There's more to it than that, but I think that's what's being talked about here. And the fear of the Lord here has the idea of obedience. The fear of the Lord in Scripture is always tied to a life of obedience. Caring what God thinks and desires more than what others think and desire. More than even you think and desire. It's trust and reverence for God. It's fear of God. I fear him more than anything else. Fear of God is always tied with an obedient life. Proverbs 10.26, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the wicked will be short. But the years of the wicked will be short. Deuteronomy 10.12-13, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways. To love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. To keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you for your good. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Peter again quotes this section in 1 Peter 3, 8-12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. He's talking about all the things that we should obey. A tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, and he quotes a section of the psalm. So there's material benefit to living in the fear of the Lord we see in verses 9 and 10. In verse 11, fear of the Lord must be taught. The younger you teach someone this, the better, right? Some of you that maybe came to Christ a little later in life wish you came to Christ earlier, right? Because you got some scars that maybe you could have avoided. And maybe if you're younger and you've been taught, that is such a gorgeous, great blessing to have been taught the fear of the Lord from a young age. And I think that's part of what a church does, is that when you become passionate about God, you become passionate for children and children coming to know God. So you can, so we see that here in David. David's wanting to gather all the kids in this little cave, like this fugitive on the run's like, give me some children so that I can teach them the fear of the Lord because I want them to know this from a young age, just like I did. And so he wants to teach the children. You want to live long and have more happiness, see the world, know your grandchildren. That's what this long life that he's talking about. Why does someone want a long life? To enjoy as many good things as possible, as long as possible. And so fear of the Lord. It's It's a principle, not necessarily a guarantee, but... We want long life so that we can enjoy more of God and his good blessings. Verse 13, control your speech. That's the obedience. Repentance, obedience, peace, reconciliation. All talking about obedience, living in the fear of the Lord. So do you base your decisions on what others think, what you think, or what God thinks? What fear, we're all fearing something that shapes our behavior. What fear? Is it fear of God or is it fear of what somebody thinks? Is it fear of being exposed? What fear is shaping your behavior? Some fear is. Is it the fear of the Lord? What words most quickly come out of your mouth? Think about why that is. What fear is motivating and shaping that? What about what you, when you say no, about what you say no to? Is that shaped by a desire to what pleases God? Sometimes we say no to really good things like serving someone, right? Or showing up or praying. Well, what is it? Well, that's because I want something there's something, there's something going on there. Or is it self or someone else that dominates what you say no to? What do you say yes to? Is that shaped by your desires, others' desires, or God's desires for you? Are you a seeker of peace? Do you pursue it? Make a plan for and put it on your calendar, tangible acts of obedience to God. Make a plan. Do it. Walk in the fear of the Lord. Make it difficult for your flesh to dominate your activities, the fear of man. Put filters on your phone limits on media, strategically increasing or decreasing certain people in your life, right? (laughs) Some people help you fear the Lord. Some people don't help you fear the Lord. Surround yourself with people who will point you to him. And then lastly, 
Man, this sermon's getting long, but man, this is such good stuff. Glorify and enjoy God through redemption. Look at this, verses 15 through 22. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. Trusting in the salvation of the Lord is, yeah. So the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and, he hear, and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of those from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them all out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, what's interesting here is that this really, if you laid this on top of the Exodus story, I think he's talking a little bit about the Exodus story. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. If you read the beginning of Exodus, the people are crying out to God and God hears them. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, the Egyptians, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of the trouble. The Lord hears, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from, the, from them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, is an allusion back to uh, Exodus 12:46, which on the Passover, they had to take a lamb and they had to cook it, right? And they had to eat the lamb, they had to taste and see, they had to, t- they had to take it by faith, they had to put the blood on the door. But they had to make sure not to break the bones. This had to be a perfect, pure lamb that died in their place, that they could find refuge inside the blood. And this perfect lamb would be the means by which judgment would pass over and they would be safe. And so then when the people celebrated the Passover year after year, they had to recreate the Passover event. And so they would sacrifice this lamb and they had to make sure not to break any of its bones. Because this had to be a perfect sacrifice. There could be no blemish. It had to be a perfect sacrifice in order for the sacrifice to be valid. You jump to John 19.36. And guess what we have there? Is that we have Jesus hanging on the cross. And he is shedding his blood to create a new exodus. And what it is that he is the lamb that you find refuge in. And in John uh, John 19.36... It says this. He who saw it, this is verse 35. He who saw it has bore testimony. This testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Instead of crushing the legs of Jesus, they pierced his heart. Which seems like just an arbitrary decision by the soldiers, but it was sovereignly ordained by God that that would happen so that none of his bones would be broken and it would be a clear signal that the lambs that have been dying for centuries to to simulate the covering of sin has now happened. The real lamb died. The real exodus has happened. And those who find refuge in this perfect lamb who shed his blood, those who take him by faith, are delivered. And that's what we see here. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None who take refuge in him will be condemned. David is seeing a little bit of a mini exodus himself, like he was in captivity and the Lord delivered him. But here we see that that there's there's a bigger exodus that's happening, and that's the exodus out of sin. We are under the wrath of God because of our sin. But there is a perfect one whose bones will not be broken, who will give his life as a sacrifice for us. And so Christ is in this passage. He is our exodus. He is our deliverer. He is our Passover lamb. He is our avenger. And if we put the blood of, of, of the lamb by faith on our hearts and we hide behind the cross, we will be saved. We will be delivered from all evil. We must have our own exodus story. David kind of had his own exodus story, right? We must have our own exodus story of realizing that we're captive by sin. But we were made to glorify and enjoy God, and we can if we'll come to the cross, if we'll find refuge in Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man who died in our place, that we might be released from the power and the chains of sin, that we might be made alive to God to actually enjoy him. So the bottom line, finding our refuge in the righteous life, because the righteous was talked about a lot in that section. We didn't unpack that. But the righteous, the righteous, the righteous. Jesus was the righteous one. And by trusting in him, we become the righteous ones. Finding our refuge in the righteous life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection is how we re-enter our purpose of glorifying and enjoying God forever. So ultimately, for us as New Testament believers, 
we come to Jesus and then he opens up this whole door of glorifying and enjoying God in all these ways through worship, through prayer, through obedience, through, and through redemption. Oh, through scripture as well, yes. Augustine said this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. The good news is that we can have rest in God. David abandoned his honor and pretended to be something lowly so that he could escape the wrath of the Philistine king. Jesus, in many ways, left the honor of his throne and took on our shame. He wasn't pretending to be lowly. He became lowly. Not that he could escape wrath, but that he might endure wrath that we might escape. Jesus, Jesus is the one who came and delivered us. God's deliverance from David was, cert was certain doom and destruction. And that's why David enjoyed God. Our deliverance is from certain judgment and damnation due to sin. But he is delivering us. If we will glorify, if we will humble ourselves before him, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and begin to glorify and enjoy him, this psalm then comes alive. So let's, let's take a moment and just quietly, in our own hearts, let's, let's, let's go before the Lord right now and let's just pray. Oh God, this is a big psalm <laughs> and this turned into a, a big sermon. Lord, but I pray that there is something in this that tastes sweet, Lord, that we would glorify and enjoy you through worship and through prayer, through the scriptures, through obedience, and through redemption. Lord, I pray that there would be maybe someone here or on the live stream that would come to Jesus Christ and find refuge in him, that would repent of their sin and trust in him his life, his death, his resurrection, and begin to open, step into a world of enjoying and glorifying God, knowing that one day we'll spend eternity with no limitations in terms of our experience of you um, because of sin. So Lord, we uh, just uh, thank you for this word. Thank you for this time together. And I uh, pray that as we sing here in just a moment, that we would sing with our whole hearts out of joy for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing.
few minutes here. I think we have some questions. There weren't any that came in online, so you're on your own, man. <laughs> well, if any of you have any questions, you can or want to ask a question, or I, I have a few, and then I'll uh, we'll survey the the audience here. Um, Well, I, there is definitely a lot in the sermon, a lot of practical, a ton of helpful practical things. Um, one, so I guess maybe you asked a lot of good questions too about what are the things that we fear and these sorts of things. And I guess, you know, a lot of people really think of religion, Christianity as like something that kills joy, you know, and delight in life. And uh, clearly this psalm goes totally against that. So I guess m one question is, what are the things that we believe, maybe are the things that we think are the more life-giving, you know, stories or ideals that we have that, oh, Christianity is totally, oh, man, I would ruin things if I became a Christian, or if I'm a Christian, I want a little bit of this, and Christ. Mm -hmm. So what are the things that we that believe? That kind of kill yeah. the joy? Yeah, the things I, that we believe that actually are more joyful and Christianity would kill, but in fact, it's the reverse. Does that make yeah. sense? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. But do you have one? Could you give me an example? Um, well, I mean, I think, I think uh, off the top, you know, we live in a country where if I just have more stuff. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, that would bring me joy. You know, like I can think of times in my own life where I'm like, you know what, what can I, how can I use a pick-me-up? Well, I'll go to the store and get something, you know, and yeah. I feel good for a little bit, you know, like, so I'm looking yeah. for joy and having yeah. something new, you know, mm -hmm. so I guess, whereas Christianity sometimes give up stuff right. feels like, uh, I don't know if I really want to give up stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think that, I guess I would go to, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question directly, but uh, we're all worshipers by heart. God, God made us worshipers. So we're worshiping something. We're looking for joy and happiness in something. And I think, I think we just need to tell people that whatever you seek other than God is going to ultimately fail you. Like your soul is too heavy. Like it will crush whatever it is that you're putting your heart into. So if you're putting your heart into this relationship and like, man, I'm just going to live for this person, that person can't bear that. And so you're going to inevitably crush them and be disappointed in yourself or, mm -hmm. you know, and your stuff. Like if it's just like if I get that promotion or if I, if I just had more money or that vacation home, you'll get there. And then it'll be all of a sudden like, well, this didn't satisfy my soul either. That's yeah. why we have so many celebrities that are strung out on drugs or, yeah. you know, they have everything that you would think makes them happy. And yet they take their own lives or they, you know, go from relationship. Or they're not finding it. Mm -hmm. They're not finding it. So in Christianity, yeah, you're, you're, the argument is that God himself is the only thing that really satisfies. You've made us for yourself, O oh Lord, and our hearts, are, um, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. But that's something that's like, I think, hard to, until, that's something you have to kind of, that's that, that's that kind of taste and mm -hmm, see, mm -hmm. because I think to the, the person who hasn't come to faith in Christ, can't even kind of see and experience that. The natural mind hasn't been awakened to the glories of God. So God, God just feels like this big judgmental being yeah. that just is out to smash all fun. Yeah. And just like, you know, um, so um, I, you know, that's where I think Ecclesiastes is helpful. It's like. You know, Solomon's like, under the sun, meaning everything except God, like, because yeah. God's above the sun. So everything under the sun, I have tried, and it's all meaningless. Like, mm -hmm. And so the book of Ecclesiastes kind of helps us, like, okay, is it lots of relationships? Is that going to do it? No, that doesn't do it. Is it building projects? Is it this? Is it this? Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And so um, I think that, like, Bree and I enjoy our relationship and our marriage better by not making each other the most important thing. It's our delighting in God that makes actually the, our relationship more enjoyable because mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be ultimate anymore. She mm -hmm. doesn't have to come through for me every time on everything, and I don't have to come through for her. So it takes a lot of pressure in the fact that we're looking to God for that, which makes us able to enjoy this better. I think in our job, because all of a sudden I'm not living for that promotion or that, mm -hmm. or that, that sale or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm not living for that, so I enjoy it more when it comes because it's a kind gift from God. And when it doesn't, my, my soul isn't. Mm -hmm. crushed. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I think, yeah. 
I think that that's what we have to offer people is that yeah. by being rightly re- reconciled to God, you'll actually be yeah. able to enjoy things more. Yeah. There's that old hymn that says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named Joe Rigley that says, no, it's the opposite. In the light of his glory and grace, things will actually grow brighter mm-hmm. because yeah. you'll receive it as a good gift from him yeah. as opposed to expecting it to be your God. Yeah. So. No, that's, that's good. And I, th- I think that it is a challenge because this psalm goes against everything that a lot of people think about. And even Christians sometimes be like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, Lord, I hope that you just never call me to do something really hard as a Christian that would yeah. cause me to give up the things I really enjoy, yeah. you know, and have to depend on you or something like that. Right. Oh, am I, am I not in? Oh, sorry, sorry. I was trying to not trip on the wire. That's what I was trying to do. A little closer? Okay. I feel really loud. Um, so I, one other question that I had, and then I'll, we'll, I'll open up to you all, is there's a lot of sad songs, psalms, prayers yeah. in the book of Psalms. So how does that go? How does being sad fit with praising the Lord continually was kind of the other I guess, big question I have. Yeah, we had one just last week even, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I think that's just, that's the human experience, and I think we are called to be honest with God, and not everything is always happy. We are in a broken world, and I think we acknowledge that, that like, I really want to glorify and enjoy you with my whole heart, and I don't. I just don't. So I can say that to him. (laughs) And actually, in the confessing, the lamenting, God begins to turn it. I love uh, Psalm 13 because of that, because halfway through, it's like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? My soul is weak. My eyes are getting dim. And then second half, all of a sudden, it's like the act of confessing in the first half triggered something that then resulted in the last half is praise. Mm -hmm. So he was never going to get to the glory and enjoyment until he acknowledged how deeply terrible he felt. Mm -hmm. Like he actually had to go kind of through the suffering to get to the glory. He had to go kind of through that. But he had to take that to God because he lives in a broken world. Yeah. Even Jesus does that, I think. Even Jesus laments, mm-hmm. you know, not I would have yeah. gathered you. Like, yeah. you know, how long he gets frustrated with his disciples. And so, I don't know. I assume that, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. But the brokenness yeah. of the world, I think we can acknowledge honestly. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, it seems in one sense when there's a lack of, delighting in the Lord or praise, whether it's some of the psalmist's sin, and that's often the cause of lament, oh, Lord, forgive mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. The, the delight has been lost because they're sort of further from the Lord or looking around, at the, mm-hmm. and so there's this kind of, it gets in the way of right. joy and delight. Yeah. 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 Um, any questions? Yeah. Andrew. You want to summarize that for the recording? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she said it so much, so well. Yeah. Um, let me see if I can get get it. Um, that only Christians can really know joy and delight um, deeply, insofar as we're not our our happiness, our joy, delight is not determined by our circumstances. Is that yeah. okay? Yeah, it's good. We have something that transcends our circumstances. Yeah. I was even thinking like with my kids, I can enjoy my kids more when I'm not finding my identity in them. Mm-hmm. So they do something that embarrasses us or our family. I'm not so crushed by that because well, they're their kids, like, and they're good gifts, right? So, I mean, I think that just across the board, like, man, if I was living to get that car, then that hailstorm can destroy my, you know, I mean, just, just there's a million things yeah. that we can live for, even good things. But man, if we would just like hold those more loosely, I think we would enjoy them more because we're holding so tightly to God and he can actually bear the weight of our souls. And so let's put our soul weight there and then whatever gifts he gives us is great and whatever he withholds is fine, you know, like, so. And I think the hope of heaven, the fact that no no good thing in this world are we gonna miss out on in heaven, you know, like the new heavens and the new earth. So I can throw my bucket list away because if if it's great here, it'll be there just as good or better, you know, so I... I don't have to try to chase everything. So yeah. I don't know. I, I just think there's a lot of freedom there. Yeah, that's so. good. Other questions? All right. They're just ready to go to lunch, I think. <laughs> so.
enjoy God through lunch. Yeah, thanks for hanging in there with us today. Um, If you would please stand for our benediction. If there is some way that we can be of encouragement to you, uh, make sure you go to uh, redeeminggrace.info. Register for next Sunday. That will help us plan for next week. And uh, Justin's actually preaching next Sunday. I'm going to be out of town the next few days. So... Um, but here is our, uh, our benediction, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May that be true of us this week. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.